Amen. Thanks, Will. Y'all get up for Will. Thank you so much, man. Grateful for you. All right. Well, if we haven't met, my name is Rudy Hartman. I am on staff with Doxa Church and with the Salt Company. Uh, you are catching us at the end of a series. If it's your first time here, we want to honor that. We're super grateful that you're here. This is kind of what we do uh, every week at Salt Company. But there are some new things that we're doing tonight. We got Open Gym after, Cereal Bar after, hooking it up. Super, super glad that you're here. If you don't know someone around you, we'd love for you to get to, to know them. But we, we love seeing people connect with one another and connect with God. So we're going to jump into to the text here uh, this evening to close out our series on gospel change. Um, but before we get to that, I've got to confess to you, I'm still new to Madison. Uh, I'm still new to the area. My wife, Molly, and I moved here about four months ago, um, and I still haven't found a wing spot yet. Like, okay, now let me tell you why this is so important to me. I found a taco spot. Like, like if, if you want a good taco, like, I'm going to go to Bar Taco. Like, I'm going to go to, y'all know, anybody know about El Jalapeno out there? Nobody knows about El Jalapeno. That's what I bring them out. A couple people, okay, like Cantina out on the square, like, we're going to throw down. Like, get a good taco, okay? I have not found a wing spot yet. So I'm actually, like, crowdsourcing right now. Molly, wherever you are, can you write some of these down? Can you just tell me, like, what are some wing spots in Madison that I've got to go? Why are you shaking your head No. That's so ice cold. Back to, no, back row. Stay there. Okay. What, somebody, somebody help me out. Are there any places where I can get like a good wing in Madison? Wings over Madison? There's a wings over Madison? That's incredible. I got some no's in the back. I got some yeses. Wings over Madison. What's in, I saw a hand. Okay. Wing stop. Okay, we get it. Like, I'm kidding. No. I'm just playing. Anyone else? Anyone else? A good wing spot. A good wing spot in Madison. No? All right. What? Jethro's. Oh, that's icy. Okay. Um, so I, so, so this, I, I like, I love a good, I love a good wing. The best wings, by the way, if you're ever in State College, Pennsylvania, are at a Mexican joint called Mad Mex. That makes no sense, by the way, but it's absolutely true. I, I've got the, the receipts. Um, so uh, I, I, I love a good wing. I love a good quality wing. Um, but there are also like, there's moments where I, in college, primarily wanted a quantity wing. You know what I'm talking about? A little bang for your buck. Um, so there was a place about two miles down from the University of South Florida uh, on Fowler Avenue in Tampa, Florida, called Gators Dockside. Gators Dockside, I'm glad no one went, woo, I would have been like, you're a liar. Um, uh, Gators Dockside uh, had this deal on Monday nights where from 6 p.m. to close, you could get all-you-could-eat wings for $13. Are you joking me? All-you-can-eat wings for $13? <laughs> I had some 30-wing nights. I had some 40-wing nights. But there was a moment where my roommate Jeremy and I uh, had, had this discussion, and he looked at me and he said, Rudy, I bet I can eat more wings than you. Look. Look. I was barely a Christian, but I knew that, that he was about to, I was about to crush him. Okay, so I, I, I looked at that man and I said, I got you. Let's do it next Monday. Here's what you need to know about Jeremy. He was about six foot six and was solid 250 pounds. And your boy was still rocking at like 5'11", question mark, and, um, and like 165 pounds. So I'll just give you the stats. I ate 64 wings that evening. Jeremy ate 67. I know. And he walked out of there like, fine. And I walked out in pain, y'all. Like, I don't recommend this. This is not wise to do. But when you get down to it, like, 
The word to summarize and describe my desire to eat more wings than Jeremy was, was ambition. I had, frankly, I had an ambition to, to defeat this man. I wanted it. I wanted it bad. I was, I was in a word, I was ambitious. Um, Saul Company, I, I wonder if you've like ever considered like what you're actually ambitious for. <laughs> Like, if you've ever, like, like, considered, like, the things that you actually want. Like, what do you, like, like, let's be honest. Like, let's drop the facade. Like, what do you really want? Right? Like, what, what, do, you, what do you want? Like, what, what do you crave? What are you ambitious for? And can we just dispel this idea that, like, in Christian context that can come up that, like, ambition is somehow, like, a bad thing? Like, I hope that you're ambitious for something. Like, I, I, I hope that you uh, have a hope. I hope that you have a focus. I hope that you have a dream. I hope that you want something. I think one of the most off-putting things is when Christianity is boiled down to purposeless spiritualism. It's not laid out like that in the Bible. You certainly don't see that in the life of Jesus. But it can seem to be the narrative of our Western culture about what Christianity is. It's a nice bell or whistle. It's a little nice thing to add onto your resume sometimes. It's nice, but it's not necessary. And it certainly doesn't shape the way sometimes that we, we live. It's just some extra thing. You can feel like this purposeless spirituality. Dallas Willard says it like this. I got the quote on the screen. How many are turned radically and permanently away from the way of Jesus by Christians who are unfeeling, stiff, unapproachable, boringly lifeless, obsessive, and unsatisfied. Spirituality wrongly understood or pursued is a major source of human misery and rebellion against God. If you can't say amen, you better say ouch, man. I was talking with Sam Roberts before this, and he said that is a hammer drop. Not even a mic drop, it's a hammer drop quote. And it feels that way. Because Christianity is not this purposeless spirituality. Last week we saw that in the text. That Christianity is absolutely not a purposeless spirituality. Acts, I'm sorry, not Acts. Um, Ephesians chapter 2 verses 8 and 9 talk about you've been saved by grace through faith, through the work of Jesus Christ. This is not of yourself. You can't boast. And then it's followed by, crazily enough, verse 10, 8, 9, 10, where he says, uh, you have been, uh, you, are the master, you are God's masterpiece set apart for good works that he's prepared in advance for you. Christian, you were not just saved from something, though you absolutely were. Your sin separated you from God and you've been saved by grace through faith. You have been saved from something, but you've also been saved for something. Uh, he has put good works in front of you for you to do, for you to do, for each of us to do. Look, I hope that there's a lot of affection for the reality that we have been saved from something. But I hope, too, that there was at least a little bit of ambition that you have to pursue the things that Jesus has saved you for. This is a distinctive marker within ambition, though, right, that we've got to actually deal with. Like, ambition is relatively a good thing, but not all ambition is created equal or should have equal weight in your life, right? So maybe a, a way to crystallize my question is not just what are you ambitious for, but what are you ambitious for and is what you want worth spending your life on? Like crushing 64 wings at Gator's Dockside to beat Jeremy was something I wanted. It is not worth spending my life on, although I felt like I came close. But what is your ambition? And is it worth spending your life on? Look, I'm not even necessarily, just to dispel this, I'm not even necessarily talking about your vocation. Like maybe your vocation will be your ambition. Maybe what you're studying to go and do will be your ambition. Maybe it will actually be a vehicle for your ambition. Maybe what you end up making a living doing might not be what you make with your life. It may just be a means to an end. So what is it, your ambition? 
want to do a little bit of work around this tonight as we jump into Acts chapter 13, verses 1 through 3, and look at the church of Antioch. If you will, I would like to look at the anatomy of ambition through the lens of Antioch as we close our series, Gospel Change. Now remember, the gospel came to Antioch, it has changed Antioch, and it would continue to be at work in Antioch, but it also now must be carried from Antioch. And we see that in the, in the text. Acts chapter 13, verses 2 and 3. As they were worshiping the Lord and fasting, the Holy Spirit said, Set apart from me Barnabas and Saul. Pause there. Saul, also known as Paul. Paul had two names. The idea of dual names in this context was common. Matthew was also Levi. Peter was also Cephas. Paul was also Saul, a Roman name and a Hebrew name. Acts chapter 13 verse 9 kind of breaks this down for us when he says Paul, who was also called Saul. So when I refer to Paul this evening, don't be like, hey, Rudy, that wasn't in the text at all. Saul, Paul, interchangeable. Set apart for me Barnabas and Saul for the work to which I have called them. And then after they had fasted, prayed, and laid hands on them, they sent them off. So to dig into the anatomy of ambition in Antioch, I want to look specifically at Paul. And we're going to need to look at his past, at his present, at this moment in Acts chapter 13, and then at Paul's future, kind of moving on from there. And to make it just a little bit easier, I'm going to structure this in a kind of stacking triangle as we look at the anatomy of ambition. So this might feel a little more like teaching than preaching, but I'll go back and forth. My friend Saul and I were talking about this a little bit this week. Um, So I'm going to try to structure this so you can remember it just a little bit easier. And my I hope is that as we look at the life of Paul this evening, that you would either consider or commit to a gospel ambition. You see, for some of you, this is new, and you just need to actually like take a step towards considering a gospel ambition, considering uh, that the gospel actually may be the thing that you want to see go out and be made much of in your life. For others of you, you've been considering it for a long time. You've been following Jesus for a while, and tonight is the night that you need to commit to a gospel ambition, to pursue an ambition set apart by God for your life. So as we look at Paul's past, we'll consider the identity level of this. As we look at his present, we'll consider the calling. And as we look at the future, we'll consider the assignment. But first, Paul's past. We don't just meet Paul in the church of Antioch. Before there was a church in Antioch, uh, Paul is in the picture of the Bible. If you don't know his story, it may surprise you a bit. Paul was a religious leader in the pharisaical sect of Judaism. And if that idea of pharisaicalism or a Pharisee sounds familiar to you, it's because it's the group of religious leaders that went toe-to-toe with Jesus for a majority of his ministry on earth. So Paul is, is a man with a past. And we said this last week that there isn't a human in heaven or a Christian in a church that doesn't have a past. So if you're in this room and you have a past, join the team. We've got merch in the back, right? Like so did Paul. Paul's past included him violently persecuting the church. Paul oversaw the very first murder of a Christian for professing Jesus as Savior and Lord in Acts chapter 8. Paul would clear out churches. In fact, it's likely that because of Paul's violent persecution in Jerusalem, that that was an echo that sent men from Cyprus and Cyrene actually to move towards Antioch with the gospel. Now, pause. This isn't the point. Of this, but I want to note that persecution of Christianity is widespread globally, not just in the past, but actually in the present. We're not going to do this, but I have stories that would make your stomach turn about men and women who are attacked and suffer for something that you might consider purposeless spirituality that they would say they'd put their life on the line for. And Paul is one of these persecutors. Paul had a past. 
Acts chapter nine actually records that story that on his way to clear out another church uh, in Damascus, Paul has an encounter with Jesus where Jesus encounters Paul, knocks him to the ground and says, why are you persecuting me? Jesus so uh, affiliates himself with the church that Paul going after the church, Jesus took that personal. He said, that's an offense against me, against my body, against my people. Paul is functionally a church terrorist and he has one encounter with Jesus and everything changes. He's blinded until he's baptized. He goes to Galatia for a few years and then to Jerusalem where he's commissioned and sent out for ministry, approved by the apostles and sent out. And then he goes to Antioch. You see, Paul's identity has changed and his activity has followed. He goes from church terrorist to church planter. What made him do that? How do you have such a giant jump from one to the other? He used to be one thing. There's an encounter with Jesus Christ and now he's an entirely other thing. Well, he actually breaks this down in Philippians chapter three. It'll be up on the screen. This is in a different translation, the New Living Translation. Um, he says, I was circumcised when I was eight days old, like a good little Jewish boy would be. I'm a pure-blooded citizen of Israel. Again, speaking to his heritage. I'm a member of the tribe of Benjamin, a real Hebrew if there ever was one. I was a member of the Pharisees who demand the strictest obedience to Jewish law. I was so zealous, here it is, that I harshly persecuted the church. And as for righteousness, I obeyed the law without fault. And once I thought these things were valuable. But now I consider them worthless because of what Christ has done. Yes, everything else is worthless when compared with the infinite value of knowing Christ. He's not saying those things in and of themselves were worthless. He's saying compared to this, those things are worthless. Compared with the infinite value of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord. For his sake I have discarded everything else, counting it as garbage so that I might gain Christ and become one with him. I no longer count on my own righteousness through obeying the law. Rather, I become righteous through faith in Christ. For God's way of making us right with himself depends on faith. Just listen to this. I want to know Christ and experience the mighty power that raised him from the dead. I want to suffer with him, sharing in his death so that one way or another I will experience the resurrection from the dead. You know this is about his identity, right? Like Paul is saying that his identity used to be in his impressive credentials, used to be in what he was able to do, what he was able to accomplish, what he was able to rattle off, how much he knew, what he did or didn't do. And now his identity is summed up in three words. Paul is Christ's. He says that old identity, it is trash compared to knowing and being known by Christ. I gave all that up so that I could know Christ's personally. This is a massive change of identity, and this is what the gospel does. It isn't just some slight alteration of what we believe. It is a reformation of your identity through the work of Jesus Christ. So what are some things Paul says about his identity? He says he's been made righteous by Christ. He has a right standing before God, not because of what he's done, but because of what Christ has done, living the perfect life that we could never live, dying the death on the cross that we deserve, experiencing the separation of sin on behalf of sinners so that we who put our trust in Jesus Christ might be in relationship with God so that Jesus would be our way, our truth, and our life and that we would be able to come to the Father through him because no one can come to the Father except 
through him. He goes on the cross. He dies for our sin. He takes our sin and separation and death and punishment and judgment and wrath that we deserve for our sin into the grave. He goes there. He dies. He's dead for three days. And then on the third day, which we just celebrated on Easter, the tomb door bursts open and Jesus walks out. He's like, got so much like just weight on this moment that he like folds his laundry before him leaving the linens behind and leaves that John as empty as a Chick-fil-A on a Sunday because he is risen and he is risen indeed. So we have purpose not only to contemplate the sin that we've been saved from on Friday, but to celebrate the new life that we share in with Christ on Sunday. This is the good news of the gospel that we have and that makes him a right before Christ. He is known by Christ and he knows Christ. The worst case scenario as Rob taught on Sunday is that for Paul, he'll have a life and of assurance of eternal life with the resurrected Christ. He just wants to know the resurrection of Christ. And all of this was foundational to Paul's ambition. It was not separate from it. It was an unshakable identity that was rooted not in what Paul did or would do, but in what Christ had done. That was his identity and it is ours. Immovable because the one who gives it to us, Christ, is himself immovable. This is the foundation of this triangle because it's the foundation of our lives. Your calling may pivot in different ways. Paul's did when it was clear that he was called to go to a different group of people in each city called the Gentiles. Your assignment absolutely will change. And we'll get into this, but Paul's did as he went from place to place and people to people. But your identity in Christ Christian will not change. You may come to understand more and more about it, but here's what's awesome. What you learn along the way was true of you before you even knew it because of what Christ has done. That's incredible. You just get to spend the rest of your life learning more and more of who you actually already are in Christ. Welcome to Christianity. It's incredible. So who is Paul? He's righteous. He's known. He's assured. Christian, what is your identity? Righteous in Christ. Known by Christ. Accepted and assured by Christ. Trusting personal relationship with Christ. Worst thing that's going to happen to you is eternity with God forever because of what Christ has done. Yes, you have a past, but so did Paul. And now you have a new identity in Christ. 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 17 says it like this. Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, they are a new creation. The old has passed away and see the new has come. Jesus Christ makes us a new creation. When we put our trust in him, this term that you maybe heard thrown around, you are born again. You are made new. You're a new creation in Christ. Ergo, you have a new identity in Christ. And that new is so much better than better. This is the base of the anatomy of ambition. Our past, Paul's past, replaced by Christ with a new identity. It's yours, Christian. But what about Paul's present? This Acts chapter 13, uh, 2 and 3 moment captured by being set apart for what God had called them to do. This idea of calling. What about this next level of calling? Identity, Calling. I want to clear up some language around this word calling because in both spiritual and non-spiritual settings, I think there's been some really unhelpful language used in it at best and manipulative language used in it at, at, at worst. So let me define it. My definition of calling is this. Your calling is the clearest sense of what the focus of your life should be. Calling. The clearest sense of what the focus of your life should be. So three questions to consider with your calling. What is your hope? Who is your nearest neighbor and what is their need? 
and how are you wired? By which I mean, uh, what is your affinity? What are people affirming in you? And, and, and what are you, what's your ability? What are you good at? What do others say that you're good at? And, and what do you want, love? Maybe what is your ambition? So let me break those down uh, in the idea and in, in kind of the life of Paul. So Paul's hope is Christ. <laughs> we just broke that down. Paul's foundation is Jesus Christ. His nearest neighbor as he gets sent out is Barnabas and the need of his neighbor is partnership. So Paul is a leader of leaders. We kind of get a picture into his life and who he is. But what's his wiring look like? All right, look at his ability. He has an ability to reason with a broad spectrum of people based on his upbringing and his education and his experience. No, that was not where his righteousness would come from. His righteousness would come from Christ. His identity would come through Christ. But those things were helpful. And what he was able to do. He experiences affirmation by elders and pastors in Jerusalem. We see that in, Genesis, in Galatians chapter 1. And he's sent to help strengthen and plant churches. And as he's sent to help strengthen and plant churches, they say, hey, we just want you to remember the poor. And Paul looks back and he says, that's the one thing that I was going to be sure to do. So we see it in his ability and his affirmation. And then in his affinity, he kind of lays out what his affinity is, what he loves, what he's ambitious for. In Romans 15, 20, where he says, I make it my ambition to preach the gospel, not where Christ has already been named, lest I build on someone else's foundation. He, he, we, we see kind of this picture. His hope is in Christ. And, and he's a leader of leaders who's a church planner that wants to break new ground and see people who don't know Jesus come to know and follow Jesus and be saved. In Paul, we see uh, what we'll call both the universal and unique calling. So there's a calling that is universal to all Christians. Their hope is in Christ. So there are a few things that are universally true when we're trying to figure out the best idea of what we should focus our lives on. They're all actually from the Gospel of Matthew. And I'm going to put them up on the screen if you want to take a picture of them or just write them down. The Great Search, the Great Commandment, and the Great Commission. The great search, uh, uh, Matthew chapter 6, verse 33. Seek first the kingdom of God and all his righteousness. Be about the kingdom of God, the way of God, the systems of, of God. Seek it first. This is laced into the prayer of Jesus in the same chapter where he says, uh, where he teaches us to pray that his kingdom would come and will would be done here on earth as it is in heaven. Seek after God. Be in relationship with him by following after Jesus and seeking his kingdom. So seek the kingdom, the great commandment. Love your, the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind. This is the greatest and most important commandment. The second is like it, love your neighbor as yourself. To simplify this, love God, love people. The Great Commission, uh, go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe everything that I've commanded you. And remember, I'm always with you to the end of the age. So let me simplify this for you. Seek the kingdom, love God. Whoa, love this, my bad. Love God, love people, and make disciples. Universal calling for Christians. Those are just pieces of obedience in our life. Seek the kingdom. Love God, love people, make disciples. That is a universal calling that is steady for Christians. But how that fleshes out in your life, what that looks like in your life, is a part of the unique calling. Unique calling. Within this universal calling is a unique calling. This is Acts chapter 13, verse 2. To the work to which I have called them. So who is your nearest neighbor and what is their need? How are you wired? What, what, what are you good at? What are the, the, the things that you love to do? What are the things other people look in on you and say, hey, I see this in you. I've noticed this in you. I appreciate this in, in you. 
uh, it's, it's a beautiful picture within the universal and unique uh, calling that all are given a work to which God has called you. Th- think about it like this. I heard a pastor say it like this once. He said, if you were a firefighter, you'd have a specific role when it came to rolling up to a house that was on flames. One of you might drive the truck. One of you might man the hose. One of you would make, the, make sure the water was flowing. One of you might be on the siren. One of you might have to go into the flames and check the house for stragglers. All, well, each of you has different and unique ways that you've been empowered and equipped to be a fighter, fire, firefighter. It doesn't change the reality that you were all on a universal and common mission to put out the fire. Here's what that means. Some of you are incredible at leading and growing uh, uh, disciples in, in your connection group. Some of you are amazing at making new friends and building relationships. Some of you have a default of like care and compassion. Some of you are great at making those around you feel loved and seen. Some of you are great at taking the Bible and explaining it in a simple way to help others see themselves in the story of God. Some of you are great at talking to the new person. Some of you are terrified of talking to the new person, but the people you have relationships with, you have deep relationships with. Some of you are brilliant organizationally. Some of you have a gift for making money and a generosity to go with it. I could go on and on and on. And while each of you in Christ may have a different, unique part of the work or are empowered by the Spirit of God in a different way, we are all sent to be a part of the same movement, the same universal calling to seek the kingdom, love God, love people, and make disciples. Unique and universal, shared and individual, I want to say this just briefly. Don't freak out if you don't know what this is right now. You actually get to find that out along the way. So you lean in to seek the kingdom, love God, love people, and make disciples. And along the way, your unique calling will get fleshed out. It will get kind of called out as you're in community. People will say, hey, I see this in you. You'll realize, oh, I like doing these things. Oh, I'm actually kind of good at that thing that I didn't know that I'd be any good at. Find out along the way what your unique calling is, but lean into the universal calling while you're waiting and while you're seeking. So let me recap this. Identity, who Paul was now because of Jesus, who we are now because of Jesus. Calling, the clearest focus of life universally for Christians, uniquely for individuals. And then finally, we have assignment. Assignment. Assignment comes out of calling, and it often has to do with context and community, as we're looking at the, ambition, the anatomy of ambition. It has to do with place and people. So let's go back into the story of Paul. Paul has three primary missionary journeys that he goes out on. The book of Acts, from Acts chapter 13 to the end, covers these. Uh, Paul is uh, around sometimes the same people and sometimes different people. He's sometimes in the same place and other times he's in different places. Check this. In every place, what is Paul doing? Well, he's seeking the kingdom, he's loving God, he's loving people, and he's making disciples. Universal calling. Uniquely, he's leading leaders, he's sharing the gospel with people who have never heard it before, and he's starting and planting churches. So he's operating out of his calling. Now, and, now, and then you break down the reality of the assignment being shaped by the people and the places that he happens to find himself. He has the same message, but different methods depending on the people and the place. As an example, just in Philippi, you see the way he interacts with Lydia and with uh, a girl that was oppressed, that, he fr- that was freed by God, and a jailer, and he interacts with each of these individuals in different ways. Further, if you take the way that he interacts with people in Philippi and, and the way he interacts with people in Athens, those are totally different ways as well. Why is that? Because Paul's assignment takes, shape, takes the shape of the people he's around and the places that he's in. It is the same message. 
message of the gospel, but he uses different methods depending on the people and the place. If I may take the liberty and vamp off a TikTok trend, Paul understood the assignment, okay? His calling worked itself out in the assignment that he had based on the people he was around and the places he was in. This is Paul's activity. Hear this, founded on his identity, His identity was untouched and untouchable. It did not change. It was steady, especially in moments when his unique calling and assignment shifted. I need you to get this salt company because there are two threats that will crush you as you attempt to live into your gospel ambition and they come up when we mix up this triangle, when we fuse things together, when we don't understand this as three different parts as an anatomy of ambition, but look at this as like just this this whole picture. And the two, uh, the two threats are inflexibility and insecurity. So inflexibility comes uh, when you fuse calling and assignment. When you fuse calling and assignment. When you value the people in the place that you're in above the universal and unique call f- f- uh, focus of your life. Let me say it like this. If you're saying, I can only, uh, if, if Paul was saying, I could only lead with leaders and make disciples so long as Barnabas is with me. I need that person to be with me. I can only lead leaders and make disciples so long as I'm in Antioch. He's fused together his calling and his assignment. Inflexibility here means that you don't bend when this happens, but you break. So in Paul's life, there's this moment where Paul and Barnabas have a sharp disagreement in Acts chapter 15. Paul and Barnabas were sent out from Antioch together. Now they split up and they plant churches in different places. So the question you've got to ask is this, is Paul finished? Is Paul done? Well, he was sent out with this person, but he's not with that person anymore. Is he done? Is this no longer the work to which God has called him? No, there's no disqualifying sin here. Paul is universally called to seek the kingdom, love God and people and make disciples. He's still uniquely called to lead leaders and plant churches. It's just that his assignment, the people, the place he's in has changed. Here's why I think this is super important for you, because you're on a college campus and your people in your place are guaranteed to change. Your assignment is going to change. College campuses have this kind of like picture that they're a lake, and it's ironic because we're surrounded by lakes, Um, but but this picture that they're like a lake, and a lake's a great place for you to build a house and make friends and stay forever, but it's not actually a lake. A college campus is a river. You start at one one end, and you're going to end at the other in three to five years. Everybody that you know that's in this room is going to most likely leave. Sorry, that's like sad, I know, but like, but I'm just trying to tell you the truth. Right? The people that you're around are going to change. The place that you're in currently is most likely going to change. I would hate for you to think that you would, or only to seek the kingdom, love God, love others, and make disciples while you were at a university. That you could only seek the kingdom, love God, love others, make disciples while you were with this person or this group of people. If you're inflexible with place and people, then when you go home this summer, you might think that's something that I do on campus, but not at home. Or when you graduate, you might think I can't do that now that I'm not around Doxer, now that I'm not around Salt, now that I'm not around this community of people. When you go home, when you graduate, your identity stays the same. You are in Christ if you are a Christian and you've put your faith in Jesus. Your universal calling stays the same. You seek the kingdom, love God, love people, make disciples. Those things haven't changed, but your assignment has because the people in the place you're in have. So if you fuse assignment, the changing conditions of context and community of people in place with your calling, you'll become inflexible. 
and inflexible things have a tendency to break. Maybe that's some of you. Uh, This one's me. So the other threat is insecurity. This is when you confuse or fuse assignment with identity. This is when your activity is where you derive your worth from, where you decide who you are based on what you're able to accomplish. So when you succeed, you're a successful person. When you fail, you're a failure. And you put your own spiritual spin on that. I'm not concerned with what that is, but I have beat this drum from the first message that I ever preached here five months ago because you could smell it in the air of this city. Performative formation of identity will absolutely crush you. It will crush your friends. It will crush your family. And it will crush your identity if you fuse your identity, who you are with your assignment, what you are doing. Back to Paul. Paul had people reject him, beat him. He was shipwrecked. He had close men that he discipled and led abandon him. John Mark abandoned Paul. Now their relationship was eventually restored. Demas abandoned Paul. And their relationship is never recorded as being restored. So is Paul a failure? Is Paul done? Is Paul done? No, thank you, Miles. Thank you. Talk back to me. Um... No, because his assignment and his identity were not the same thing. If you were talking to Paul over a cup of coffee at Indy Coffee, what might he say to you about how to navigate this threat of insecurity? First, I think he'd be like, hey, meal latte, milk and honey, I get it, right? That's Old Testament. Um, Then he'd say, what is this bitter drink, right? Because the coffee, never mind. Okay, um, Okay, so second, I think he'd sip it, love it, by the way, and he'd look out the window, and he'd look back at you, and he'd say, I, I want you to remember two things. And I'm summing up a lot of scripture to give you some phrases that are, are, are memorable here. I, th- I think he'd look at you, and first he'd say, hey, it's not easy, but it's worth it. Hey, it's not easy to have a gospel ambition. It's not easy to go out and share. The, it's not easy to go invite your it's not easy. It's not easy to do that. It's not easy. It might not get easier. It's not easy, but it's worth it. What you're doing in your gospel ambition, it's not easy, but it's, it's worth it, friend. I think he'd look at you and say that. And then I think he'd look at you and I, and I think he'd say, I just want you to remember that you're a sheep before you're a shepherd. I think he'd want to look at you and, and, and say, hey, what you do is important, but you're not important because of what you do. That who you are become, comes before what you're doing. That your identity is the root of your activity. I, I, think, I think he'd lean into something. I think he'd say, hey, I forget the things that I've left behind. And I'm reaching forward to that which is ahead as I move towards the upward call of God in Christ Jesus. I, I, I think he'd put that in front of you. Stand on Paul. Just since we've been working through the anatomy of ambition, through identity, calling, and assignment, what is his gospel ambition? <laughs> I think we heard it. Uh, earlier in Romans fifteen twenty, We read it when he says, uh, he gives us a phrase and a picture. And I think that's actually a really helpful way to do it. He says, I make my ambition to preach the gospel, not where Christ has already been named. That's the phrase. Lest I build on someone else's foundation. That's the picture. He's saying, I want to break new ground for the gospel. I want to set the foundation that you build the house of your life on. And I want it to be on Jesus Christ. I love that gospel ambition. Maybe that, that could be yours. Um, can I share mine with you? Uh, a phrase and a, and a picture that I, I, I just feel pretty convinced that this is a gospel ambition for my life. Um, the phrase is this. I genuinely believe that the gospel came to me on its way to someone else. 
I, I'm convinced. You couldn't convince me that it's not true. Like the gospel came to Rudy. I was saved as some idiot 18-year-old that committed a crime and got caught for it, had a bunch of questions, had people answer them, and God was super kind to me, gracious to me. I opened the Bible and, and, and began to learn that I was saved out of my sin, out of darkness, into light, out of death, into life, not because I did anything, but because Christ did. That, that, I, that I was rescued and I was saved and that gospel came to me, but it didn't come to me to just stay with me. It came with me to, to go to somebody else. It came with me by God's grace, to get to go to Tampa, Florida, and to get to go to Ames, Iowa, and Des Moines, and, and, and Wuhan, and, and, and so many places across the Middle East, and, and, and to get to go to State College, Pennsylvania, and now Madison, Wisconsin. I'm convinced that the gospel came to me on its way to someone else. Not because I think that I'm great, but just because I think that the gospel came to everybody on its way to somebody else. I'm convinced of that. That's my gospel ambition. That's my, that, 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 I'm just, I'm convinced of it. The picture of that that I, I like to use, that I like, I like I focus on, is, is have you ever seen a wave at a football game? You love that? When like one section, I'm not going to make you guys do it. I just saw someone be like, please don't. Um, but like you, like you see the wave go across? I think there's two things that are important about a wave. Um, the first is this, that for the wave to continue, the person next to me has to stand up. If, if, I, the, thing, if the wave that came to me, if I'm not standing up and I'm not helping the person next to me to stand up, they came to me and it stops with me, then the wave will stop. Gospel, the, the, the wave that came to me has got to go to the person next to me and get to the person next to them and next to them and next to them and next to them. And it's so cool to look out over this uh, crew and look at people and see, hey, the wave came to you and now it's going to someone else and someone else and someone else and someone else. That's one thing. Two, the wave starts in the student section. <laughs> I love this I love college ministry. I love being here. I love this space. It has been the privilege of my life for six years to get to be on college campuses, to, to help plant churches and college ministry. It, is, it, and to build, it has just been the joy of my life for the last six years with the SALT Network and for f- several years before that in Florida. I, I absolutely love that. So the gospel came to me on its way to someone else. That's my phrase, and the picture is a wave in a football stadium. You want to break down the anatomy? Who am I? I'm just a dude who majored in sin for 18 years, but now I'm a man in Christ, saved by grace through faith. Calling, universally, it's the same. I want to seek the kingdom, love God, love people, make disciples. Uniquely, my nearest neighbor's name is Molly Hartman. (laughs) My nearest neighbors are on Westbrook Lane, and by grace, I'm getting to meet, we're getting to meet Dave and Connie, and we're going to meet Greg, and we're getting to meet so many people that are down. On Easter Sunday, someone came and brought us like a, a cake and invited us to a barbecue. And that was like an answer to prayer from Molly and I. It was incredible. Those are my nearest neighbors. The gospel came to me on its way to them. Uh, my wiring developed potential, my assignment, I get to focus my attention on what I'm convinced is the most important place on planet Earth for the gospel to be, and it's the college campus. But I know this, that the gospel came to me on its way to someone else. Just like the gospel came to Antioch on its way to another place. Just like we see in this text. It's the same gospel of Jesus Christ that went from Antioch. It's the same gospel of Jesus Christ that came to you and that goes to somebody else. It's that same gospel. You know, Jesus had a holy ambition too, right? He, he had a gospel ambition as well. Uh, Lily, you, you can come on up. We're going we're gonna to wrap here soon. Um, in Luke 4, there's just this incredible passage. Uh, I don't have time to break it down. But in verses 18 through 30, there's this amazing chunk of Scripture where Jesus reads a passage from Isaiah 61 about the Savior 
that Israel had been waiting for. And essentially he says, he does some things and says some things, and he's communicating, that's me. I'm the savior that you've all been waiting for. He sits down on the mercy seat and they stare at him in amazement. But then he goes on and he shares uh, two really seemingly obscure stories in the Old Testament. Essentially two instances where God did something to save people who were outside of the nation of Israel. A widow in Sidon and Naaman who was a general in Syria's army. And after this, everybody wanted to kill him. They literally says like they pushed him off, like they tried to push him off a cliff. Um, Why? (laughs) Like why is that? It's because he was a savior who came not just to save the people that people expected him to save. But he came to save the unexpected. He's saying that I'm a savior and I came for everyone. Do you know who the unexpected people are in that story? In the story where Jesus is saying, I'm interacting with people in Jerusalem. You know who's unexpected? People that are sitting in an air-conditioned building 2,000 years later, a sea away on a continent that they didn't know existed. We're the unexpected people. Hey, friend, you don't know Jesus. You're the unexpected person. You know who's included in that? I'm the Savior and I came for everyone. Paul was. Antioch was. And Salt Company, so are we. Jesus is the Savior who has come to rescue not just some, but anybody who would come to him. He lived, he died, he rose, he saves. That gospel, that good news has come to us. But it's not come to us just to stay with us. Just like it didn't go to Antioch to stay in Antioch. It came to us on its way to somebody else. So I just want to ask two questions. It'll be up on the screen just for you to consider. Um, Has the gospel come to you and how is it going to get to somebody else? So you just close your eyes and bow your heads just for a moment of focus and concentration. If you're new, I'm not going to ask you to do anything. I'm just going to ask you to be there and consider these questions. Has the gospel come to you? There's another thing that Jesus says in Luke 19 where he says, I can't speak and save those who were lost. If you're not a Christian, if you've not put your faith in Jesus, that would put you in the category of of loss. But the good news is you can be found. I'll take you through the, the pyramid. Your identity is that you're not in Christ. Your calling is from Christ to himself and your assignment is to respond with faith, to put your trust in Jesus. If you're not, the gospel has not come to you. It's come to you today. How will you respond? If you are a Christian, I I wonder, how is the gospel going to get to someone else? What is your gospel ambition? I hope you remember who you are in Christ, that your identity is untouchable. I hope that you live into the unique and universal calling. I hope that you discern your present assignment. But what could God do through you? If you've got three weeks or three years left on campus, what could God do through you? Take a moment, pray, and then I'll pray and we'll sing.